Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. A new class action lawsuit with James Burke and Thomas Spoda at its center. It's a movie, and unfortunately, I got involved with it. You wake up sometimes, and I, I still can't believe that really happened. Outrage over Asa Ellerup's Peacock documentary deal prompts New York lawmakers to make a move, leading us to examine the current state of Son of Sam laws. There's a nasty little word in our lexicology in the First Amendment world called the chilling effect. Rex Heuerman's letter to the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson, is made public. First off, I would like to say thank you for your letter and advice. They've been a help and comfort to me. The story behind this letter calls for a deep dive into the controversial world of murderbilia. When Hewerman was taken into custody, I knew that people would start putting out stuff if they had stuff. Most of the victims' families are shocked to find out it's happening, and they're stunned to find out that someone could actually be in a prison cell 
and shipping items out for sale on the open market. I've got shoes from Charles Manson. Manson String Arts, the string dolls, will sell for anywhere from four to $8,000. People get upset because people get upset about everything. I've had people say, oh, it's unethical, it's immoral. Well, that's all subjective. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Long Island Serial Killer. A year ago today, I would have been lying if I said an arrest in the Long Island Serial Killer case was on my bingo card for 2023. Years of stalled investigation under corrupt police leadership made me skeptical to that possibility. Our earlier episodes of this podcast delve deep into that saga. If you haven't yet listened to them, it's worth your time. But the July 14th, 2023 arrest of Rex Yorman for three of the murders associated with the Long Island serial killer has given new hope to victims' families. The citizens of Suffolk County had had enough. And after installing a new district attorney, they continued a clean sweep in November by voting in Ed Romaine as the new county executive. He has since appointed an interim police commissioner while he vets candidates for the position. This is the first time in 22 years that the three most powerful positions in Suffolk County don't involve James Burke, Thomas Spoda, Steve Ballone, or one of their approved candidates. And that matters when it comes to the Long Island serial killer investigation. The corruption of the department through the actions of James Burke, Thomas Spoda, and ironically, Spoda's Public Corruption Bureau Chief, Christopher McPartland, is still being unraveled and litigated. While Burke has finished his sentence, McPartland was just released to a halfway house for home confinement for the remainder of his sentence. Thomas Spoda at the age of 82, is still incarcerated with a possible release date eyed for May of 2025. Those of you familiar with our earlier episodes will remember John Oliva, a detective who is illegally wiretapped by James Burke and Tom Spoda. He is now at the center of a recently filed class action suit that's been filed against Suffolk County, James Burke, Tom Spoda, Christopher McPartland, among others. I caught up with him to get the details, starting at the beginning, how we ended up on Burke and Spoda's radar to begin with. Even though I was pulled out of the federal task force, I was constantly in contact with the FBI agents. I would talk to them as almost daily because I was still handling so many of the MS-13 homicide cases and I still had so many informants that would reach out. Burke signed it at the time. It was a, a department memo and it said, you're not allowed to talk to outside agencies. And it mentions the feds in it and stuff like that. And if you do, you have to let your supervisor know. So every time I spoke to an FBI agent, I had to let my sergeant at the time, a boss, by the way, I talked to the feds three times today, reference this case, reference that case. And then my sergeant was supposed to relay that to like his lieutenant and his lieutenant was supposed to relay that up all the way up to the chief of detectives, which would be Madigan. And Madigan was part of the administration, one of Jimmy Burke's boys. And they would let Jimmy know, oh, he was constantly talking to the feds. Once they knew that I was still talking to these guys, you know, 
They're like, this is perfect. They were privy to anything that these guys would tell me. And then after the fact, you know, they basically used it as a, like an intimidation to put fear into everybody. So they used a ruse. They went to a judge and made up a lie about a reason to tap your phone. Yes. And his reason for doing that was because Burke was worried that you were talking to the FBI and maybe giving them information that could harm Burke. The feds would give me any tidbits on what was going on. Hey, you know, how's that Burke investigation going? Hey, John, we hear this might be happening or this might be happening or not. It's quiet right now. Nothing's doing. They're like, hey, we're just going to sit back here, listen on the phone. And uh, anything that's going on, we have the intel. That doesn't sound normal. There was nothing normal about what they did. You know, for a department that size, the 12th largest in the country, you know, it's 2,400, 2,500 guys. It's amazing what they got away with for that long. They lied to the judge. They said that there was a pattern robbery that was going on that had leaked out to uh, Tanya Lopez at the time, which obviously I had nothing to do with. It came out during the trial and everything. They said well, the reason for this meeting is we're going to fuck John Oliva. And that's when people realized that the wire was illegal. Oh, my God. Look what they did. And that's when it, it opened up everybody's eyes. The wire was all about saving Jimmy Burr. It is amazing. And when you look at Burke's personal life mixed with what he was doing, it, it makes it doubly amazing that, like, he was allowed to do this for so long. He was protected by Tom Spoda all the way along. The more he screwed up, the more they promoted him. It's a movie. And unfortunately, I got involved in it. You wake up sometimes and I, I still can't believe that really happened. In a department this size, in a county like Suffolk County with, you know, say a million and a half residents, how the hell does that happen? There should be checks and balances that would make sure that this doesn't happen. And obviously, they had all the checks and balances covered. So this lawsuit now, as far as the class action lawsuit, are you part of it? No, I'm not. Once I settled with the county, I'm completely out of it. In 2022, John Oliva settled his claim with Suffolk County for $1.5 million. He had been pressured by District Attorney Thomas Spoda to resign and to plead guilty to the crime of leaking information to a Newsday reporter, a conviction that was overturned in 2021. I would say that anybody that was caught up in the wire will probably get a letter at some point asking them, do they want to take part of this lawsuit? They were up on my phone for those three months. I'm not going to put their names out there at this point and stuff, but, you know, certain bosses that I was friendly with would call me up and they're like, hey, John, what's going on? We're so fucked up. They're like, oh, that so-and-so's names were friends with John Oliva. They would kibosh that guy's career. Maybe he wouldn't get a promotion or maybe he wouldn't get that other command that he wanted. Or, you know, maybe they would just transfer him to screw with him and stuff like that. So anybody that was a friend of mine was not a friend of theirs. Anybody that they didn't like, that's what they would do too. If there is going to be a financial settlement of some kind, will that be with the Suffolk County Police Department or the individuals themselves? This would be the county. You know, the the lawsuit would be uh, against Suffolk County. So the end game here is essentially just repercussions for like the yeah, lack of oversight and allowing this to happen. Absolutely. All these people that were up that I spoke to during that time, they've never even been notified that they were caught up on a wire to this point. The people have the right to be compensated for being caught up in an illegal wire. It did harm you ultimately, right? You know, I pled to the charge. Official misconduct was what it came down to. You know, it ended my career. I had just over 20 years on. Um, you know, I still might be working now. At this point, I'd have 30 years on if I was still working. I was doing excellent, but I was a major case handling bank robberies and stuff like that. I was, I was one of the top guys. They just took it all away from me at that point. One thing that I've never been super clear on, as far as you mentioned it, like the leaking of the documents allegedly to Tanya Lopez, of the IAB documents about Burke, was that you who gave them to her? No, that actually came up during the trial. His 
internal affairs documents. You figure I never even worked in internal affairs because you have to be a sergeant or above. I didn't know if that played a part in all of this or not. <laughs> it came out during the trial. I actually remember it was Vinny Pasilico, who I was semi-friendly with over the years. It came out that he was the one that had given up the internal affairs files to Tanya Lopez. I saw him in the hallway and he goes, hey, John, I- I'm sorry, man. I know you ate a lot of shit for that, but <laughs> obviously it was me. It came out during the trial that no, so-and-so was the one that uh, gave that paperwork up. Someone had to do it. Like, to know that existed. I think he's a hero for doing it. I really do. And you figure at that point, Steve Ballone at that point should have said, you know, Jimmy Burke, you're you're not my chief of department anymore. Were you surprised at Burke's arrest? I'll tell you, everything that came out about him back in the day, the prostitutions, you know, losing his gun, possible drug use and stuff like that. And by surprise, I'm going to say no. I mean, it's amazing that just people went to bat for this guy during all those times. And he is what he is. Anybody that doubted anything, this should really just open up their eyes. This guy is what he is. He's a train wreck. He really is. It's a shame. In other news, when it comes to Rex Yorman, we are awaiting the grand jury verdict on whether or not he'll face charges for the murder of the fourth Gilgo Four victim, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. And Asa Ellerup, Rex's wife, was spotted still wearing her wedding ring. While she filed for divorce, her actions, including attending his recent court appearance, seem to suggest she is still very much connecting with her husband through this ordeal. And for that matter, Rex Hewerman is also looking out for his family. After the release of our last episode, a letter Rex Hewerman wrote from jail on August 31st of 2023 was published by thedailymail.com. The letter was sent to Keith Jesperson, also known as the Happy Face Killer. As you may remember, Keith's daughter, Melissa, is the one who set up the GoFundMe page for Rex's wife and their kids. And it seems that Rex was very appreciative. Here's an excerpt from that letter, and we've had it read by someone who is obviously not Rex Huerman. Keith, first off, I would like to say thank you for your letter and advice. They've been a help and comfort to me. Being only a month and a half into this, as you know, I have a lot to think about. Right now, I need to get a few things in order, which the lawyers are working on. The main thing I wanted to say was thank you to you and yours for the letters and what has been done for mine. Thank you, Rex. The letter didn't reveal much more information, other than Rex acknowledging he has received a lot of letters. Quote, asking for interviews to be friends, pen pals, end quote. And he asked Jesperson whether he gets butter for his bread at the prison facility which houses him. Rex seems unimpressed with his food options and remarks yard time is just walking in circles outside. But what really piqued my interest was the story behind the letter itself. A podcaster named Keith Revere received the letter from Jesperson and it then made its way to the Daily Mail. The letter, and the controversy surrounding Ace's documentary deal, calls for an examination of both the industry of memorabilia related to serial killers, also known as murderabilia, and the state of our country's Son of Sam laws. There has been a lot of controversy surrounding Rex Hurman's wife, Asa Ellerup, who signed a deal rumored to be worth $1 million with Peacock for a documentary series. We discussed it in the last episode. Since then, two bills were introduced in the New York State Legislature 
proposing to expand the state son of Sam laws in order to prevent families of criminals from profiting off the notoriety of their crimes. The viability of these bills are unclear, although these moves by lawmakers do amplify the voices of the victims of these crimes who hardly ever financially benefit. I reached out to Amanda, sister of Megan Waterman, one of the Gilgo Four victims who Rex Uerman stands accused of murdering. It means so much to hear from a family member about this stuff. We were just interested in hearing how you feel about the Peacock documentary. It's kind of mind-blowing to know how much she got. I mean, if you have that much to offer one person, why did none of the other victims' families get offered anything? What baffles me is, what if she is a part of this? When you hear that her hair was found on my sister, it's like, wait, what? I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt and hoping and praying that she had no knowledge of this or whatever. I was really torn on this because me personally, I would not feel right taking money because I just feel like I'm making money off my sister's death. But like if I was to get money or something, I would have definitely put it towards a tombstone because she needs that. If they had said, hey, you know, if you do this episode for me, I will buy Megan's tombstone. I would have done that in the snap of the finger. Amanda, I don't know if you've seen this. Rex Huberman wrote a letter to Keith Jesperson. There's a lot of people online. They buy and sell the letters online, and they're collectors of these things. That's insane. That's insane. I didn't even know that. That's crazy. <laughs> so are you saying that, like, so with the Rex Shewerman letters, who would get that money? Well, it just depends on who has the letter. I went on eBay, and there's, like, a Rex Shewerman's middle school yearbook going for, like, $1,000. It would just be whoever had it. That's just so crazy to me. I... <laughs> That is crazy. Coming up next, we learn what these types of letters are worth and whether or not laws are being broken by those who profit off of them. It's a fascinating exploration with two people on opposite sides of this debate. The letter that Rex Huerman wrote to convicted serial killer Keith Jesperson has been made public via the DailyMail.com. It all feels sort of, well, icky and exploitative, and I wanted to know more about this strange world. A quick Google search for serial killer memorabilia will have your head spinning. You can have your very own John Wayne Gacy painting of a clown skull for $19,500. You can have a three-page Ted Bundy letter and envelope set signed for $4,200. Or a hand-drawn fill-in-the-blank Christmas card with envelope from Dennis Rader, also known as BTK, for a steal at $500. And you can address it to whomever you like and send them a card from BTK that says Season's Greetings. There are also objects from Charles Manson, Ted Kaczynski, and Darley Routier. We don't know whether money has changed hands for the Rex Uerman handwritten letter, 
But now that it's out there, someone may want to pay for it. Who buys these? Who sells these? How big is this industry? To get a better understanding, I spoke with Andy Kahn. Can you start from the beginning about how you got into this? I'm Director of Victim Services, Crime Stoppers of Houston. I've been a victim advocate now for over 30-some-odd years in the mayor's office, police department, and now at Crime Stoppers. Prior to that, I was a parole and probation agent, so I chased Houston's finest all over the city and the county. On the issue of murderabilia, which was a word I ended up coining to describe this wacky industry, it was the fall of 1999. I was reading a Rochester paper online, and I had a little blurb about a New York serial killer's art privileges being rescinded because prison officials discovered he had artwork for sale on eBay. And that serial killer's name was Arthur Shawcross. It intrigued me, and I just went over to eBay and clunked a search in for serial killers, and items came pouring out. I was instantly mesmerized, dumbfounded, perplexed. I was like, wait a second, you can't be profiting from committing some of the worst crimes known to mankind. This can't be legal. Contacted eBay's public affairs, and they very succinctly said, Andy, we're not the morality police. As long as it's legal, we have an obligation offered to our customers, and you don't like it, feel free to do something about it. And I just went, sure. I just decided I was going to take this industry on. I started working on crafting laws called notoriety for profit laws. ABC's 2020 got wind of what was going on. eBay sent out a news release stating they were no longer allow the sale of murderability out of respect to victims' families. The timing of their news release in the 2020 program was merely coincidental. Coincidental. They've actually done a very good job of uh, policing their site. So what happened was kind of like when you exterminate cockroaches from one room, they simply set up shops somewhere else. So the dealers that could no longer use eBay as the conduit simply set up websites of their own. So that kind of fast forwards us to where we are now. So you have about five to seven dealers throughout the country that uh, operate websites selling items that they've obtained from serial killers, mass murderers, school shooters, high-profile killers that are then marketed and sold at a profit to the public. And when you first started familiarizing yourself with this industry, what kind of items were you getting? There was a California serial killer that uh, sold his fingernail clippings which I admit I have. I have several artifacts of clothing that are worn. I have artwork, letters, autographs. Hair samples are, are a big commodity. I have a, a, a five different hair samples from serial killers. You name it, anything that can and attached with their name can and will be sold on the open market. I felt it was important to actually show that this industry does exist. So when I appeared before elected bodies and whipped out somebody's hair sample or artwork or whatever, they could actually see that this is happening and it is being done in their jurisdiction. So I haven't bought anything in years, mainly because I pretty much have everything I need. As part of Andy's efforts, he reached out to about 20 serial killers to check if they even knew these items were being sold. There was one response that was truly surprising. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam whom all the profiting laws are named after. And he asked me if there was anything he could do to help me. I asked him for a statement, which he provided. 
And for the last 20 plus years, he and I have been corresponding on this issue. He's been a tremendous help. And it doesn't get any better when you have the son of Sam, who all the profiting laws are named after, actually working on your behalf. You can't script that. Did his response surprise you? I was shocked. I didn't know if they were aware of it. Wow. Will you explain for the layperson sort of the inception of the Son of Sam concept as it relates to the laws? So the Son of Sam laws were enacted in 1976, basically in, somewhere in the, in the late 70s. There was New York had a killer by the name of David Berkowitz that killed six, wounded seven, captivated the entire city of New York and the nation. And when he was taken into custody and eventually convicted, there were a, a great deal of concerns. There were rumors going around that he was getting a book deal. He was signing movie rights. No, actually, none of it was true. But, you know, the friends he took over in New York ended up passing what's called Son of Sam laws, basically making it illegal for convicted felons to sell their rights for books and movies. It sat on the uh laws for years. And then in 1991, there was a test case, and it was involved Simon and Schuster versus Henry Hill. Now, the name Henry Hill probably won't ring an, a name for a lot of people. But if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas, that's the actual character that Ray Liotta plays. Simon and Schuster offered Hill a quarter million dollars for the rights to his story. New York Crime Victim Compensation Board sued under the Son of Sam statute. And it went all the way up to a little-known court known as the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of Simon and Schuster striking down the Son of Sam laws because the Son of Sam laws dealt with restricting free speech. Most people still to this day are under this delusion that we have protection from Son of Sam laws. And they're shocked to find out the U.S. Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. I'll give you another example. Years ago. Columbia Pictures offered a half a million bucks to two kidnappers who were convicted of kidnapping Frank Sinatra Jr. Frank Sinatra Jr. sued under the California Son of Sam statute, and it went all the way up to the California State Supreme Court, who ruled in favor of Columbia Pictures, striking down California Son of Sam laws, again, because the language restricted free speech. So the Son of Sam laws, for all intents and purposes, they might be on the books, but they're subject to be challenged. And any challenges have voted in favor of convicted felons. So I started looking at the issue of, of simply profiting from crime. Basically say, you know what? Paint, scratch, sniff, doodle, write, do whatever the hell you want. You just don't make money off of it. As a victim advocate, have victims or families of victims ever voiced their opinions to you? What kind of things do they say? When I sent this to a very well-known victim advocate in California, whose name you might recognize, Mark Class, and I said, Mark, I said, I need you to get online with me at that time. And I said, I need to show you something, what's going on. And sure enough, there was a, a picture of Richard Allen Davis, who murdered his daughter, Polly. And there was a picture of him shirtless in the prison yard in San Quentin that was being sold. And I'll never forget, Mark said, this is absolutely sickening. And he said, my daughter didn't die so he could make money off of my daughter's death. Another victim said it was like a gut punch to her. And for the most part, most of the victim's families are shocked to find out it's happening. And they're stunned to find out that someone could actually be in a prison cell 
and shipping items out for sale on the open market. How fanatical does it get? Like I went on eBay today just to see like if there's any Rex Hewerman stuff on there. And I found his middle school yearbook for sale for almost a thousand dollars. Does that surprise you? You're not going to have big name serial killers. And that's mainly because of technology. Technology is not going to allow killers to get away with what they got away with in the 70s, 80s, and even the early 90s. And the minute BTK was arrested, of course, I immediately knew that items would come out. And God, did they come out. And it came out in droves. This is the merchandising and marketing of BTK. So when Hewerman was taken into custody, I knew that people would start putting out stuff if they had stuff. So what's going to happen in Hewerman right now, by definition, he's not convicted of anything. So he's fair game. I'll give you an example. When Jody Arias was standing trial for her murder, she was one of like the queen. Everybody knew her. Even during trial, she was drawing and writing. Assuming Hewerman does get convicted, once he gets settled into a New York prison, they will come after him because he's a big name and he's a big get. And serial killer in the last decade, he's probably the only named serial killer that I can recall. It sounds like you made a big dent with eBay, but like, where do you see something like the yearbook, right? Like, this is obviously a, a middle school classmate who's going to be profiting. The difference is that's a tangible item, a manufactured item. And we had to differentiate and ask items that are actually produced and created by the killers themselves versus manufactured items. So, for example, again, in my duffel bag, I have a Jeffrey Dahmer doll that has on his shoes, it says, eat me. And he's got a giant spatula. You know, I have serial killer coloring books. I have serial killer action figures. I have serial killer snow globes. I have serial killer bobbleheads. And that's what Hewerman's yearbook basically represents. There's nothing illegal. It's a bad taste. Yeah, I'd be wasting my time going after bad taste. Nothing's going to happen. So that's why that remains up there. How do you feel about things like documentaries? Like, I'm sure you've heard that Rex Hewerman's wife has penned a deal with Peacock. I'm a big constitutionalist. And the bottom line right now is... You might not like it is Rex Hewerman right now is innocent until proven guilty. He hasn't been convicted of anything. So if he's convicted, then it'll be an interesting battle. But right now, it's fair game, bottom line. What about his spouse, though? People are going to make money. Everybody makes money on this. The only ones who never make money are victims. I've never seen a victim make a bleep and dime on any of this. I think that's something that, you know, Hewerman's wife is going to have to wrestle with her own conscience. I guess some would say it's blood money. It is. But on the same token, someone has to offer it to her. So who's in the wrong? I've told families, look, there is nothing you can do. I get it. You don't like it. But the question is, all right, we have to make sure that we have a voice. Hewerman and Jesperson... What do you make of that? I am not surprised at all because I know Jesperson and I know his giant ego, his insatiable need to find to be relevant. I'm not shocked at all. I was pretty mystified. And it's like that letter then was made public and I'm not sure who possesses it. How much would a letter from one serial killer to another go for? 
they would go for a lot. I've not seen serial killer to serial killer correspondence up for sale. That I've not seen. Because it's unthinkable. You have capitalism, free enterprise, free speech, victims' rights, defendants' rights, and morality all rolled into this one little neat subject right here. And that's what makes it so complex. To get the other side of the argument, Andy helped put us in touch with one of his contacts, a collector and broker of serial killer objects. Naturally, it's a connection fraught with disagreement, but they've managed to keep an open dialogue. William Harder began as a collector and evolved into a broker, buying and selling all kinds of murderabilia. I asked him for what started his passion for this dark industry. When I was Gosh, it must have been six or seven. I went to the Roman Colosseum, and I was trying to fathom how two people would stab each other in a duel to the death, and that people would watch this and and enjoy it. It was so foreign to me. Like, I just could not understand that. But I was really captivated with it. As I got older, just that interest in those darker parts of human behavior just became something that I took an interest in. And I remember it was in 2000, I was actually depressed. I'd, I just had a bad breakup. I was drinking and, and drug addicted. And I was going on the internet, which was very new to me at the time. And I found a, a website that had just pictures of Richard Ramirez's drawings, the Night Stalker from California. And I just saw them and was like, I want one of those. Where do you get these? And I just began looking to find Richard Ramirez's prison number. And I eventually just searching Richard Ramirez over and over through the different pages. I eventually found the death row inmate list. And there it was. And I wrote him. And he wrote back. And after a couple of years, he sent me visiting forms and asked me to come to see him. And I just remember it was, it was just... It was a real exciting experience, and I enjoyed it very much. After that meeting, did you learn something? Like, what was gratifying about it? I mean, kind of like seeing a bear in a cage that has mauled a bunch of people. It has this heavy tendency for violence. This was somebody that I'd read about as a youngster, that I, I was definitely kind of you know, curious what his mannerisms would be like. And it was just really neat. You couldn't just walk up to the prison and let me in. That's not how that worked. I had to work hard to get it. So there was a sense of accomplishment and it just, I don't know, it was something that I really enjoyed. And I began replicating it shortly after that and began visiting, you know, with other people. What compelled you to want to reach out to them? Like what compelled you to want tangible things, like the actual items? Like what do you think that stems from? I guess I just didn't want somebody else's interpretation. I essentially wanted to sit down and ask them, questions and a book wasn't going to answer those and as far as tangible things i've always been a collector i've always been an autograph collector since i was old enough like i got one of my first autographs was eugenie clark and david copperfield i think collecting is just something that people do and there's people that get it and there's people that don't some people want to collect baseball cards others it's stamps i like collecting things related to crimes what are some things in your collection that you're proud of when people ask what my favorite item is, it's really not a, an item. It's the collective experience of doing all this. Nothing will replace going in and meeting with Charles Manson. 
how did you get interested in Manson, like to the point where you visited him? I didn't have an interest in Manson until after I visited him, actually. I just wrote him a letter because he was relatively close to me, so he didn't write back. And I tried him a second time, and he didn't write back. And that was kind of a turnoff. But then I saw a guy on murder auction. He was selling a letter that was less than a week old. Like, he had just got this letter. And I thought to myself, if this guy can get Manson to write him, so can I. So I gave it another shot, and I got my best writing pen out and just did a nice, I think it was one and a half pages, sent it to him. And sure enough, uh, he wrote back, and it turns out he was in the hole. So he was really just kind of focused on reading mail, and uh, I told him that I wanted to visit. And again, because of my close proximity, he sent me a visiting form, which was not a very commonplace thing. Manson did not take a lot of visitors. And that's a whole story in and of itself, the process. It's much different than any other inmates I've ever visited. But when I, you know, when I did finally get to see him, the gravity of it hit me, and I started doing some research, and you know, it, it, was, it was definitely a life-changing experience more with william next including what he thinks rex Uerman's experience will be like if convicted when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. 
StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. Rex Hewerman's letter to convicted happy face killer Keith Jesperson was made public, and the frenzied interest in this letter led me to explore the dark world of serial killer memorabilia, also referred to as murderabilia, the moral implications, the money, and beyond. William is a collector and broker in this strange world, an industry where serial killer objects such as art, letters, and even fingernail clippings are bought and sold. How much money is in this industry? John Gacy paintings, you can get them anywhere from three to $6,000 is what you know they're going for. 6000 being a bit on the high end, 3000 being a bit on the low end. Jeffrey Dahmer is a hot commodity. Ted Bundy, those items also. But there's not as many of those items around, and, and they are expensive. You know, if anybody's thinking about you know, trying to get into this to make money, just, just go to school and, and get a different job. How do you quantify what something's worth, and like, how hungry are people for this stuff? At the end of the day, it's worth what somebody's willing to pay. And that often gets dictated by if a case gets a lot of public scrutiny, that's going to increase the value. If a case is particularly heinous, like Dahmer, he was a cannibal killer. Netflix documentaries, podcasts, things of that nature just only draws and creates more of a public interest. And if somebody's already, let's say, dead, and there's a finite number of items out there, People will then see it and it's like, oh man, there's not a lot of this. I need to get one. As far as uh, demand, I'm also fond of saying it all sells because it all does. People will buy anything and everything, whether a case is obscure and you know nobody knows about it to the, the cases that grip the headlines every day. Do you follow what's being sold? Not really. I tend to just kind of like do my own thing. I do want these items to go to people who are going to appreciate them, as silly as that might sound. I've got some dolls that Charles Manson made that are real impressive. There was a, a young man named Sean Sellers who murdered his stepfather, his mother, and a store clerk. I like have uh, photos of him as a child, photos of him with his mother, letters his mother wrote. I mean, things that are really personal. They were very hard to uh, accumulate. I've got shoes from Charles Manson. I want somebody who's going to take care of it and cherish it. And generally items that, that uh, inmates have sent to me personally, I don't sell those. I don't sell my, my own personal correspondence. Those items I, I want to keep for myself. But everything is for sale. And the price is right. I'll have to see if I can live without it. How much did you pay for the Manson stuff? Oh, it, was, it wasn't the cheapest. Without going into too many details, back in you know 2005, it was a completely different market back then. I mean, at the time, it was expensive. It was expensive to me. I was probably, though, paying about maybe 30% to 40% market value. Because you bought it in 2005, and I'm guessing not like Manson stuff because he's no longer with us. 
just goes up in value because so much time has passed and there's a finite amount, right? Maybe the better question is like, what would the Manson item you bought then go for now? Manson string arts, the string dolls, will sell for anywhere from four to eight thousand dollars. I know one just sold recently for eight, but it was like a two and a half foot. It was real big. The smaller ones, they'll go between four and six usually. And he puts his hair in them. With some of the ones I have, you can actually see that his hair like kind of popping out in between the strings. It was a way that he would like give them life. I don't really want to say what I spent for, uh, the, 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 just because it's, I just don't want to say that I'm, for everybody to listen to. Have you ever faced any criticism about contributing to this industry? Well, yeah, people get upset because people get upset about everything. I've had people say, oh, it's unethical, it's immoral. Well, that's all subjective. I don't wear leather or fur because I have a moral objection to it. But I don't tell anybody what they can and can't wear. I just do what's good for me. I don't consume those things. But that's me. I don't tell anybody else what they can and can't do. Do you think this glorifies these killers or makes them more important than they should be? There are people who have private collections of war-related memorabilia or civil rights-related memorabilia. Is that a glorification of war? A John Wilkes Booth autograph costs infinitely more than one from Abraham Lincoln. And that's not me setting the market. You know, Adolf Hitler paintings aren't cheap. And believe me, I didn't set the market for those either. You know, those things sell for tens of thousands of dollars. If your family was, was murdered in the Holocaust, you'd be like, that is awful. That person has caused great angst and pain to my family. Now this person is going to make tens of thousands of dollars selling that painting. What's the difference? The grief doesn't change. There's just more of it to go around. And the thing is, it would kind of excuse it because, you know, you kill one person, you're a murderer. You kill a thousand, you're a conqueror. I'm not actively advocating for anybody to hurt anybody. I'm certainly not encouraging anybody to, to kill people. I don't, for one minute, think people, when they're out committing violent crimes, are thinking to themselves, well, man, maybe I'll get as big as John Gacy and people will want to write me and buy my, nobody's thinking that. I mean, just say that out loud to yourself. And if you, if you still think it, man, that's silly. You're a silly goose. That's silly. One of my repeat customers, a, a guy who's a psychologist trying to figure out school shootings, is actually a, a doctor. I've had police organizations doing handwriting analysis, order volumes of letters. If I wasn't providing this, it wouldn't be available. There are legitimate people and some of this stuff does end up in museums i've seen items that i have sold end up in museums for public display i'm interested about how you and andy came to be acquainted given your opposing views on this well the first time we'd met we were uh, in new york uh taping an episode of the anderson cooper show i took a little jab at him because he tried to have me arrested for taking grave dirt from a cemetery and i was like your arrest scheme didn't work out so well and he said to me oh nothing personal and i was like oh well yeah, it's personal to me it started our dialogue and, and as time progressed andy and i oddly enough agree on a great many things andy and i just happen to not agree on this this issue his is an emotional issue, and my issue is that this is America, and you don't get to tell people that you can't sell stuff. Andy's side is un-American. Andy's side is emotionally based. 
And I'll be honest, if somebody had murdered me when I was five years old, my mother would never be okay with somebody profiting off of my murder, ever. She would never accept that. And I would understand that. And I do empathize with that. Unfortunately, we live in a society where the, the letter of the law is free enterprise. We have the right to pursue happiness in this country. Because a segment of society is offended by something doesn't give you the right to say you can't. And they're talking about making laws to govern millions of people. I think it's very dangerous, considering most of the people in prison are just trying to do their time and come home. I'm not going to say that inmates haven't sold memorabilia related to their crimes in the past or even even in the present. I'm not going to say that that never happens. But in most cases, there's only about probably 200 living inmates out of any sort of real collectability out of like the 2.4 million Americans that are incarcerated at this time. It's such a small number. Andy's saying we should make federal laws to, to punish these, you know, to strip away more rights from laws that are just going to get abused. It'll be something that will give officers the ability to selectively punish inmates it'll be used to just punish people and destroy inmates who just want to do crafts for their kids man i can't get with it i think it's a bad call i asked william about rex hewerman have you seen anything pertaining to rex hewerman for sale yet i have not on ebay there's a middle school yearbook of his for sale for like a thousand dollars and he's you know, expecting for that to be the next sort of wave of stuff that's going to hit this murderabilia market. Somebody will write to, to him and, and gain his trust, whether that's a female companion or a man posing as a woman. Somebody will gain his trust and will start receiving letters, might ask him to do a drawing, uh, something of that nature, and then we'll start amassing items that will ultimately get sold one day. The other thing that will happen is once he gets to prison, the correctional officers will start, they'll go into his cell and, and, and steal family photos out of his photo album. Or if he takes a photo in the prison visiting, they'll, the officers will print out an extra one, take it out, give it to their friend to sell. And, and those items will slip into the market that way. They will turn up, especially if, let's say, somebody writes him and he you know, just writes them back the one time they put the letter up for sale and uh, when you're sitting in prison, you know, you tend to have a lot of time on your hands and people get creative with writing letters. And it's uh, it's what people do when they're incarcerated. Murderabilia. There's this whole other world that I hadn't previously explored. The Son of Sam laws, maybe because of their catchy title, seem to have stuck in the true crime consciousness. I spoke with David Hudson a Freedom Forum First Amendment fellow, as well as Belmont law professor. And he was pretty clear with me that these laws don't hold much weight. What is your just immediate take on Son of Sam? They're very problematic from a First Amendment standpoint because they're content-based restrictions on speech. So there's a famous quote I always tell my students, written by Justice Thurgood Marshall back in 1972, and I may mess it up a little bit, but it's, it's something to the effect, above all else, the First Amendment means that the government may not restrict speech because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. So back in 1991, the U.S. Supreme Court in the Simon & Schuster case invalidated New York's existing Son of Sam law 
finding that it did not meet strict scrutiny because it was a content-based law. It was certainly content-based because it only targeted certain works based on their content. And then the court also held that it was simply too broad because it could apply to any book in which an author mentioned, even made passing mention of a past crime, right? So I think in Justice O'Connor's main opinion, she said, you know, technically could apply to the Confessions of St. Augustine, the autobiography of Malcolm X, books by Bertrand Russell. You know what I mean? Anybody who's been arrested, right? Dr. King was arrested for civil rights activism, right? Civil rights protesting. So the laws are just very problematic from a First Amendment standpoint. The problem with these laws is it impacts not just the criminal or a person convicted of a crime, but it could impact the right of the general public to receive information and ideas, which I consider to be one of the most venerable and venerated free speech principles that we have, that we as individuals in society have a right to receive information and ideas, and the government should be very limited in how it can constrict or limit that. Right, because it's such a slippery slope. Should these laws be passed, there could be implications going in the other direction that could hinder free speech in ways that are not being considered. Exactly. And there's a nasty little word in our lexicology in the First Amendment world called the chilling effect. And uh, a son of Sam law, I think, does have a real chilling effect uh, on writers to discuss past crimes or criminal activity. And and the reality is it's an absorbing interest of mankind to to write on these things. So another implication of Son of Sam, you know, laws would also just be censorship. That's a big concern too. Absolutely. And the censorship and the and the chilling effect that that these laws have. You know, like it or not, there just is a significant interest in learning about crime. Let me ask you this. Rex Huberman has also not been convicted. So under those circumstances, how could a son of Sam law, if there was one, I think there are to some degree in New York, if he's not convicted yet, how could that work? Yeah, that that, that answers a great question. One of the most sacrosanct of all principles in our in our law is our innocent until proven guilty. So yeah, I, I'd have to look at the text of the statute to, to see how uh, I don't think it could technically apply. People are really up in arms over it. It's somewhat analogous to the outrage over the Westboro Baptist Church. That's the group that would go around and protest at military funerals, and they would hold up the most awful signs, anti-gay and lesbian signs, and essentially say that God is killing our soldiers because the United States of America condones homosexuality. About the most hateful speech that one could imagine. And there was a case that uh, was filed by the father of a slain Marine. The name of the case is Snyder versus Phelps. It was decided by the Supreme Court in 2011, and the Supreme Court upheld the Four Circuit's reversal of a million-dollar judgment verdict, jury verdict, given to the to the father. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion. It was eight to one, and he again, you'd have to check the exact language. I'll try to get it close, but he said something to the effect of speech is powerful. It can move us to both tears of great joy and great sorrow, and we may react to that pain by punishing speaker for his harmful, hurtful speech. But as a nation, we have chosen a different course, and that is to protect even harmful, hurtful speech when it touches on matters of public concern. And that is an enduring First Amendment lesson 
that I think people need to appreciate. When we started this research, I definitely thought Son of Sam laws were more robust, but clearly that hasn't been the case since at least 1991. We can have discussions on the moral and ethical implications of murderabilia, but legally, it's all fair game. Rex Huberman writing letters, others selling those letters, fair game. Asa Elrup signing a million-dollar documentary deal, fair game. Does it feel wrong that killers or their families could profit off of crimes and the victims get victimized again? Absolutely. But the alternative of broad censorship is also scary. So we wade these strange waters. If you would like to contribute to our story, or if you know Rex Yorman, please send an email to us at unraveledtips at gmail.com. Or you can contact me directly on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers and writers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and myself, Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Our editor is Caitlin Cleveland. Lisa Rebikoff is our associate producer. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.